0: This time, oh, at this time, Barnabas Grayson, sir, if you will come with the sermon to the church, reprimands and encouragement. Thank you, sir. Good afternoon. I was almost afraid to come up here. We were talking earlier about the uh, lights back there. You probably noticed them. They're pretty big uh, bulbs now. First time I've noticed them, they used to be small. But uh, we started ignoring them, so they got them bigger. <laughs> Rick told me green means to get started. The yellow, oh, is that, that's yellow. Looks white from here. but Yellow, you know, you've got about five minutes left. The red means uh, Stop. And we don't want to find out what the white one means. (laughs) So they're easy to see now. (laughs) A merry heart doeth good like a medicine. Laughter is the best medicine. The last book of the New Testament in the King James Version, of course, you know, is the book of Revelation. This word is from the... uh, Uh, word apocalypse which means unveiling its and it's an unveiling about matters or things that are meant to be revealed but you know when you read the book of Revelation not everything is very clear not everything is really unveiled at least you know to this present time there's a lot of things I don't know about the book of Revelation but this book is given in many Bibles as the revelation of Saint John the Divine In Revelation 1, you know, as we know, the introductory verse uh, to this uh, book of Revelation tells us in verse 1 that it is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ, And of all things that he saw. Today we're going to read the seven letters that were written to the church. They have reprimands and and they have praises and they have words of encouragement. But first, this book of Revelation, we know in its entirety, is a foretelling of future events. Things that are going to happen sooner or later. And All of this will transpire just before the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. So the book of Revelation, or Apocalypse, has been, you know, it's been in existence for nearly 2,000 years. It's been read and studied and interpreted by many and in various ways. But imagine those readers long ago who have either read or heard those words preached or spoken of, of things that must shortly come to pass. Shortly come to pass. However, as we know today, those things have been a long time in coming, and they still may be. We don't know. I remember many, many, many years ago, back in the 70s, everyone was thinking about going to a place of safety, that the world was going to come to its end, and all of these things that were in the book of Revelation is going to come to pass, but it didn't. So it is that sometimes we may wonder, well, where are we in Bible prophecy? So we read that John, he was on the Isle of Patmos when this revelation came to him for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. In verse 4 of Revelation 1 It tells us that this book is a letter from John to the seven churches, which are in Asia. Grace be unto you and peace from uh, him which is and which was and which is to come. And from the seven spirits, which are before the throne. So Patmos is an island in the Aegean Sea. It's about 70 miles across the water from Ephesus. And it is believed that John was either exiled there. Or uh, was there to escape persecution due to his preaching and teaching of the word of God. But from there he writes in verse 9, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So there was tribulation going on at the time and that he was uh, a part Not that he was causing the tribulation, but that the tribulation was upon him and all of his brothers there. So John was either there in flight from persecution or sent there as a prisoner. But he wrote in verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. Uh, You know, this Lord's day is not in reference to like Sunday as some some people uh, say it is. It's not, you know, the Christian day of worship that this Lord's day is referring to. Because when you take into the context the words of the book of Re- Revelation here, it, rever- it refers to events of the end time. Things that are really yet to come. So, we read on Isaiah 13:6, it says, How ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand, it shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. Isaiah 34, 8 tells us, For it is a day of the Lord's vengeance, and a, and a year of recompenses for the controversy of Zion. In Joel 1, we read in verse 15, Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand, and as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. Acts uh, uh, jill Joel 2.31 also says the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and the terrible day of the Lord come. So when you look at some of these uh, things that depict that day of the Lord, like, you know, when the moon is going to be turned into blood, you know, it, that's not literal, but it's due to the atmospheric conditions that are going to prevail at that time. Whenever you have a big uh, forest fire or a, Maybe rangeland is on fire and the the clouds, the smoke fills the air. You look through that smoke and whatever you're looking at, like the moon or the sun, they appear in a reddish color. So at that time, that day of the Lord is going to be uh, a day of smoke, a day of uh, 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 troublesome things that we will see. Acts 2.20 says the same thing. I won't read that. But there are other places in the Bible that speak of that day as a day to come. And not Sunday. So when John wrote uh, these words of things that he heard and that he saw in vision, it was from Jesus who gave it to him to write down. Verse 19, it says of Revelation 1 Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. So, you know, write the things that he's seen, write those things that are present, and write about those things that are to come. You may not see that time to come. Your children may not see that time to come. It could be years and years and years from now, but there really is no time like the present to be at least somewhat prepared by reading the testimony and the words of Jesus Christ. If you ever read letter edition in your Bible, you see that chapters 1 through 3 are predominantly the direct words of Christ, especially chapters 2 and 3, and where everything is just uh, in the first-person words of Jesus. But in Revelation, we come across many symbols, we come across many descriptions that are mysterious and they are complex. Nevertheless, we can find in these words some reassurances and a reason as to why this book is here for our consideration. Back up to verse 3 of uh, Revelation 1, it says to us, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written, written therein, for the time is at hand. So blessed and well off and fortunate are those who read this book. If you can read, if you can hear those, uh, these words, they are important to us. So that when those times that are written come to pass, we will remember that we read about them. Though right now everything may not be as clear, may not be as uh, unveiled as we would like for them to be. And and we know that many have gone to rest, not ever seeing all of these things come to pass or to see them fulfilled. But there is a sure word of prophecy that is to come and it will come to those who are blessed by reading or hearing these words. So we see that Revelation is a prophetic letter from John, and verse 5 tells us that it is from also Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. So those words that we read are going to come to pass because Christ is a faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever. Amen. So be it. You know, let it be. That's that's what we do. We know that's going to come to pass. So amen to that. So John is saying this. Behold, he comes with clouds. And every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him even so Amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, and which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. Verse 11, you know, uh, Christ here is saying, saying, I'm Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. Telling John to write what you see and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, and we have that listing. Ephesus, Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. So the question I would like to ask, and the question you can ask yourself is, which one of these churches do we fit into? Which of these reprimands and encouragements can we take to heart from reading this book of Revelation? Revelation. Now, we know that there are various organizations who lay claim to being the Philadelphia church. They say, this is the church you want to be in. This is the one that's most beloved. This is the one doing the work. This is the one that is the most blessed. This is the one that will escape tribulation. This is the one that has true brotherly love. Yet, at the same time, they uh, shun others, or they may have uh, rulers or leaders that uh, lorded over. But as we look at these letters, we notice that each of these seven churches represents a body of believers in the church that Jesus built. Their attitudes, their dispositions, their character, their good, their imperfections, their strengths, you know, things that are present in every believer. So these churches serve as a symbolic uh, uh, example of how close each one or how far away each one is to the will of God. Because even though there are seven churches mentioned here, we know that there were other churches at the same time. Philippi and Jerusalem, Corinth, the church at Rome. So we see in this book a message to us as one of exhortation and admonishment. As we know, scriptures tell us that if you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit we are of God, we are the children of God and if we don't have it, uh, we're not there yet. So in our lives we may find at times that our flame may be low, we may find that our spirit is not as up to it as it should be, but we can know this that God will not forsake us, no trial, no tribulation no and uh, nothing will separate us from the love of God without him coming to us or warning us in some way. So the spirit we know is received upon repentance. It's received upon baptism and also the laying on of hands. So each individual is, is a uh, personally the temple of the spirit of God. So we, here we have seven bodies that are made up of people in the church. We've got seven churches in Asia. This number seven is seen many times throughout the book of Revelation and kind of take a brief look at at this number seven. We know that there are seven spirits mentioned, seven golden candlesticks, seven stars, seven lamps, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven thunders. So we see this number seven is uh, also seen throughout the rest of the Bible also. Seven days of creation, seven days in the week, the seventh day Sabbath. And as mentioned earlier, uh, Naaman was told to wash seven times in the Jordan River. Back in the early days when I first uh, came into the church, I was uh, bothered by a uh, severe toothache one night, late. And I remembered the scripture where Naaman, if he wanted to heal himself, you know, go wash, your, uh, go wash seven times. So I went to the kitchen sink, washed my face seven times. It wasn't working. So I called the minister and woke him up. I could tell he was a little bit crabby. <laughs> I would be too. But uh, I asked, you know, for prayer. I asked for an anointed cloth. And it wasn't long after that that my toothache began to subside and I then later on went to the dentist there. So, uh, you know, the number seven to me was, you know, that, that was the course that you take. And uh, You know, I- even today we know about seven feasts. We know about seven years of plenty and seven years of famine that were in Egypt. Israel's captivity in Babylon was 70 times uh, uh, 10 sevens. So the book of Revelation is a book of sevens. It's a divine number. It's been said that the number seven connotes completeness and spiritual perfection. Uh, Art knows that there are seven uh, musical scales. And then you start over. You've got a beginning and you've got an ending. And uh, I read where there are seven holes in your head. So now you're probably starting to let's see. Let me count those up. There, seven holes in the head. I I did that too when when I read this. Seven holes in the head. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four, five, six, six, seven. <laughs> I can put my fingers in both my ears right here and feel the other end. <laughs> Laughter is good for the soul. But this. Number seven is connected with completion. And this may be seen if we look at Revelation 10 and verse seven. It says, in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he has declared to his servants the prophets." So this mystery is going to be completed when the voice of the seventh angel or the sound of the seventh angel is going to sound. Genesis 2, uh, in verse 1, we read that, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. I didn't give this uh, to uh, Brian, but in Leviticus 8, verses 31 through 36, before Aaron and his sons did their priestly work, they were consecrated seven days and then they would be completely dedicated to the Lord's service. In Leviticus sixteen fourteen, on the day of atonement, the priest shall take of the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his fingers upon the mercy seat eastward and before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood with his finger seven times. Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullet and sprinkle it. So we see this number seven appearing throughout the Bible. I, I believe it's mentioned over, uh, I lost count, but I think somewhere around 500 times. And Revelation 16:17. now. So we see that the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying it is done so we see completeness attached to this number seven and if you remember the book of Daniel there were three Hebrew men who were cast into a furnace because they chose to remain faithful and in worship of God you know Meshach uh, Shadrach and Abednego and this furnace was heated seven times hotter than than normal. You know there must have been some kind of an instrument that you know they had to know uh, know, how to turn up the heat or turn it down but seven times and this would imply that a lower temperature would mean you know a slower torturous uh, uh, time spent in the furnace whereas uh, if it were up higher uh, there would be more instantaneous uh, death. So From that, we might also, you know, when the the guards went to cast these uh, uh, three men into the furnace, the heat that came from there that was raised seven times hotter, it immediately consumed those men. And we can glean from that that the king didn't want these three to suffer, so the temperature was raised seven times normal. I don't know for sure, but it was hotter. But we see that these three beloved men of God's, were completely delivered. There was no smell of you know burnt flesh, no no burnt hair, and uh, or clothing. If you've ever smelled you know burnt hair or fur, uh, you know it really really does smell. I uh, as a young <laughs> as a young kid uh, during the wintertime, we had a big cat that had long hair. And it would go to the uh, next to the, the the gas gas stove, and and uh, it would warm its backside. And uh, sometimes I made it stay there a little longer than it would. And you would smell hair. One time I uh, I don't know why I'm doing this side sideline, but uh, pray for me. <laughs> I'm just glad I got past all that. You know, when you're young, <laughs> you do stupid things. You do ridiculous things. And you're videotaped, and it becomes something that you see on TV. <laughs> but I love my cat. It, it uh, survived and uh, lived a long time. But you can imagine how hair smells and how clothes smell, and I have another story, but I'm not going to tell it. <laughs> this maybe some other time, but we see that these three men of God were completely delivered. So, you know, they came out alive. When Christ returns and the dead in Christ are resurrected, they will rise incorruptible and in glory and in complete salvation. Now, by the way, the number three is is representative of the resurrection as well as completeness. Now, someone asked Jesus, well, how many times uh, should I forgive my brother? And Jesus said, 70 times 7. So there's divine forgiveness in that number. We see complete forgiveness in that number. And if you want to, you can use uh, like Strong's Concordance and you can look for that number seven to see where it is used elsewhere. But today, let's go ahead and look at these uh, seven churches. It used to be taught that the seven churches represented seven church eras at a certain time or a certain period in history. The first era began with the apostolic era, or Ephesian era, it was believed. Then on down through the passage of time to the last era of the Philadelphian and Laodicean church era, which, you know, some say we are in one or the other. But belief in this ch- uh, concept of church eras meant you were stuck in whatever area you happened to be living in or whatever area you were born in. And it also meant that you had no choice to belong to that church, but to belong to that church era. So, since we're, uh, we have the book of Revelation, we have these letters to read, and since we are told to read what the Spirit says to the seven churches, it would be remiss to discount other church eras. Besides, as I mentioned earlier, there were other churches at Rome, at Corinth, at Philippi. But these letters to the seven churches were meant as warnings. They were meant as admonishments for all church areas. Uh, For all time, and they are addressed to people that make up the church with the same kinds of good and bad strength and weaknesses that all Christians today have. They are addressed to young and old Christians, and they are addressed to young and old people. So, if what these letters says makes one think, you know, then think about it. He that he has ears to hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. Got I eye, uh, have eyes to read, then let him read what, the, uh, what Jesus says. So not only will we, will we be blessed to know a little bit about prophecy as you know, shown in the book of Revelation that, that it gives toward future events, but it would be a blessing to also know what Christ has warned and admonished us to pay, uh, to pay heed to. In our lifetimes, in the ten periods of uh, of seven that we are at least assured of, it could be long or it could be shorter. That is our life, depending on the strength and, and God's will. Revelation one, here is a vision that John saw. Now this is uh, you know this is included in this letter. John is including in this letter this vision of Jesus, and to him it was a very uh, Awesome sight. It, uh, he, had to, he had to bow down. Put his face to the ground. But he was in the spirit in verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a great voice. As of a trumpet. Saying I am Alpha and Omega. The first and the last. And what you see write in a book. And send. Send it unto the seven churches. And he tells where they are. And. Him saying that he's Alpha and Omega, that he was there at the beginning of time, at the beginning of creation, and that he's going to be there until the end of time, when all of these things are completed, and for why we are, and why uh, we are created, and everything that is around us. So John turned to see the voice that spoke with him, and being turned, he saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the middle of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with the garment, down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a, with a golden uh, girdle. This is kind of similar to what Daniel saw in, in his vision. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. I know sometimes when I wake up in the morning, I look at myself, and uh, my eyes are red, and my, my hair is a little bit whiter than it was the previous day. But so, I can always brag, well, I'm beginning to look a little bit like Christ, huh? But it's what's on the inside that counts, not what's, what's on the outside. And his feet like fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters, and he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. You know, we picture these stars as a pointed kind that, you know, that you draw when you're in art or something like that. But these stars, as we see them, are, you know, are round, a spherical, you know, like these, like these uh, uh, lamps appear. They're round. They're kind of like that. There were seven of them in his hands. So you have to kind of, uh, he's wanting us to get a picture of this image that he saw. And his countenance was as the sh- uh, sun shining in strength, like a, just like a bright light. If you if you know when you drive westward at near the end of day and the sun is shining you know it's it's very bright but his, uh, and his uh, the sun was shining his countenance was as a sh- uh, sun shining in his strength that's got a lot of s's in it you know and when i saw him i fell at his feet as dead didn't make a move didn't want to move he just just still he fell at his feet like he was dead and he laid his right hand on me Saying unto me, fear not, I am the first and the last. You know, I'm Jesus. I am he that lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. So there was a period of time after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ that he was seen for about 40 days. And then he ascended to heaven. And in that time, the disciples must have wondered, you know, is that the last we're going to see of him? But here John is given a vision and is reassured uh, by Jesus saying, I am he that uh, liveth and was dead, and I am alive forevermore, and have the keys of hell and death. We know that God has a power to save or to destroy. So he tells John, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which he saw in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven angels that he saw are the seven churches. So in Revelation 2, we look at this first church, Ephesus. This church in Ephesus in Revelation 2, in verse 1, unto the angel, to the angel of the church of Ephesus. These things saith he that holds the seven stars in his right hand. Who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know your works. And your labor. And your patience. And how you cannot bear them which are evil. And have tried them which say they are apostles and are not. And have found them liars. I know about you Ephesus. I know your works. I know your thinking. I know your attitudes. I know the trials and persecutions that you go through just like he knows us. And have borne and have patience and for my name's sake have labored and have not fainted. So he he, he takes notice of the labor and how we have not given up. Or how especially this church has not given up in spite of some of those things that were thrown at it. So the church at Ephesus receives praise. But we also find that there are some faults that need to be corrected in verse 4. Nevertheless, I have something against you, I have somewhat against you, because you have left your first love. So apparently this body of believers, for whatever reason, no longer had the original enthusiasm or the original love that it began with. It was not benevolent, the uh, agape kind of love or affectionate church our people that it once was it's not clear but perhaps there may have been they may have been too businesslike the job was more important than, than the love for people and in their hatred toward evil and their discrediting of false apostles they may have become toward them mean but whatever the cause they were told to see what is that cause and to get uh, to repent and have the same love that they began with. And so verse five, remember therefore from whence you're fallen and repent and do the first works or else I will come unto you quickly and will remove your candlestick out of his place except you repent. So we may conclude that whatever it was meant they weren't really completely fulfilling the law of love, that is love toward God, love toward his word, love toward his commandments, the Ten Commandments. And so, on an individual plane, they were falling short in their responsibility to show love. They were doing all the other things, but to what advantage if love, or this agape love, was being left out? For, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13, uh, this gives us an idea of what must have been missing. Verse 1, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. So this word charity is is the same word as uh, the love, the word love that uh, the Ephesians had left, even though they were doing other pleasing work. Verse 2, and though I have the gifts of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profits me nothing. So it's possible to go through all the motions of religious duties, and all it amounts to is vanity. And the fulfilling of the law of love goes, goes undone. Back to Revelation uh, chapter 2 uh, again, verse 6. But you have this, this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Do we today hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans? Now, earlier readers may have known exactly what this applied to, who this group was and what it was all about, but today, what background information can we look at to know that we too, in some way, should hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. But, you know, what is hateful about their deeds, and what is hateful about their doctrines? But there's very little to know. But these Nicolaitans, we can at least glean that they were probably named after somebody named Nicholas. One of the common beliefs about this group is, you know, that they uh, advocated unrestricted licentiousness. Now, it may not be clear what their deeds were, it would be, however, anything contrary to the teachings of Jesus Christ. What if someone came along and said, you know, uh, Sunday's okay to keep as a day of worship. Go ahead and work and do your thing on, on Saturday. Uh, so we're told by, you know, to try the spirits. And you try the spirits by uh, relying upon what you've heard or what you've been taught. And then you rely upon the word of God to see if those things be so or not. Romans chapter 16, now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and just avoid them. Now this word mark means to watch or to take notice of, of those, you know, who are obviously causing division or offenses. Verse 18, for they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. So they're after their own gain. Some trying to, you know, draw followers by their teaching. And one of the, uh, and we know that there are many false uh, teachers who have gone out into the world. But these at Ephesus hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans because they were making inroads into the faith. They had uh, some strong doctrines that people were beginning to listen to. And uh, fall into. And they hated those deeds. 1 Timothy 1 it says. Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ. By the commandment of God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Which is our hope. Unto Timothy my own son in the faith. Grace, mercy and peace from God our Father and Christ Jesus. Now verse 3. As I besought you to abide still at Ephesus. When I went into Macedonia, that you might charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Neither give heed fables and endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith. So do. So we see now in verse 5, now the end or the aim, not the, not the doing away of the commandment, but the end of the commandment is love. It's charity. Out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned from some, which some, having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling. So, for Ephesus, the important thing in all this, we ha- we read, not only for Ephesus, but all the churches that follow, is to repent and to do the first works and, and to uh, hold the doctrine of Jesus. But the we might ask ourselves, well, is our first... Love the same as when it began. If not, we're told to stir, stir up the spirit. That's, you know, that's in you by the laying on of hands. And uh, <laughs> you see on, on some uh, programs or TV where uh, uh, a couple might be saying, uh, Do you still love me like you used to? Sometimes we might God might ask us the same thing. Jesus might ask the same thing. Do you still love me like you used to? He that has an ear, verse 7. Let him hear what the spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. To the overcomer, and that is to the victor, to him will be given eternal life, everlasting life. So, this church, they had good works. They were sound in doctrine. They eschewed evil. But they were, were rebuked for their loss of first love, this backsliding, and they were reprimanded to return to first love. I'm still on green over there, so... I think maybe I'll just uh, do... The church at Smyrna. This, you know, Art mentioned this place over there in uh, uh, in, in the first message. Uh, Smyrna was materially poor, but spiritually rich in faith and endurance. Revelation two verse eight. Unto the angel of the church in Smyrna, write these things, saith the first and the last, which was dead and alive. Reassurance that God has be. Uh, Jesus has been with us from the beginning and will be with us unto the end that he was the one who was, uh, came and who, who died and now he lives. I know your works and tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are uh, the synagogue of Satan. So Jesus said in this life, we know in another scripture that he says, in this life you shall have tribulation. So down through the ages until now, there have been trials, there have been persecutions. Maybe not as strong upon us today as it was to Christians in times past, but it was worse off than what, you know, churches uh, today suffer. But Jesus is aware. He knows our situation. He knows that we have deep problems, and sometimes we wonder, well, why me? And, but he reminds us, well, you are rich, really. In times past, we know that there were uh, many who Christians who were, were deprived of things needed to just live. And that was due not only to uh, religious intimidation and harassment, but also political requirements that were sought to wear them down. So there was this religious establishment establishment of Jews and converts whose doctrines were not that of Christ. John 8, here's what they said, telling Jesus in verse 37... I know that you are Abraham's seed, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place for you in you. So the religious, they wanted to do Jesus in, not only killing, but, you know, also kill his message and, and his servants. Verse 38, I speak that which I have seen with my father, and you do that which you have seen with your father. And elsewhere, you know, Jesus said, I and my father are one, and the doctrines that I speak, the words that I speak, are his that sent me. And they answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said unto them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. So we know that Abraham was the father of the faithful who trusted in the word and the will of God. But Jesus said to them, but now you seek to kill me, a man that has told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. You do the deeds of your father. And they said And Then said they to him, We be not born of fornication, we have one Father, even God. And Jesus unto them said, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I proceed forth, and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why don't you understand my speech, even because you cannot hear my word? You are of your father the devil. In verse 45, And because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. Like a lot of churches today, there are surrounding influences. There are social, political, and religious uh, influences. And Smyrna uh, as a city, you know, it had a big population, about a quarter of a million people. It had wealth, it had science, it had uh, medicine going for it, and it was a center of emperor worship. And there was a temple that was built in honor of Tiberius. And every year, the people had to go... To uh, and worship uh, Caesar. They had to go and burn incense to God, the God Caesar. And they would have to say Caesar is Lord and to uh, know that they had done this annually, they were given a certificate or or something in writing that they had done this. But this church body of Ephesus, they stayed rich toward God in spite of all of the uh, persecution. Trusting in his will. And Jesus said, Revelation 2, Fear none of those things which you shall suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be you faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. So he set a definite time limit to what some of them might have to suffer for his namesake. And we also know that scripture tells that he will not test anyone above what they are able to endure. And he will make a way of escape. So in the process of testing, we also know that there is the knowledge that the trial of our testing is more precious, uh, worth more than gold. Verse 11, he that has an ear, again, let him hear what the spirit says unto the churches. We don't see any reprimands here. But we see that a crown of life waits if they hold fast and to let, you know, no man take your crown. Maybe next time I'll be able to finish up the uh, other churches. Still green light. Wait a minute.